Well, I hope you enjoyed the worship that we just did, and I uh, want to welcome you back as we uh, now take the remaining 30 minutes just to dig into the scriptures, into the Word of God, and let that inform the way we do life. Um, I'm reading from 1 John chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 10 up through verses 18. And you can follow along if you have a Bible with you. Starting at verse 10, chapter 2 of 1 John. Let's read and see what John had to say. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's gone because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And we see that today, don't we? Verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong in the word of God, which abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Look at verses 15 through 18 with me. As he builds on this, John goes on to say, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That should be bone chilling for many of us. For all that's in the world, look at these three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen from this we know that it is the last hour. So let's pick up from our last time together at verse 12. Set this down. And let's just dig in from there. So John says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven, literally pardoned, for his namesake. Now, as I said on our last time together, we need to make sure we keep in mind that John knew full well who he was writing the letter to. And he knows that those who are reading this letter are people that are born again. They're saved, <coughs> and they're already part of God's family. So it seems he's placing in these few verses this kind of a recapping of the basic fundamentals of the faith. Notice what he says. He says, I'm writing to you little children. You know, this word uh, that he's using for children is the word technion. Why is that important? Well, the, the word actually has the idea of born once. He's writing to you born again once. And the word is used frequently in the New Testament to describe believers as people who are God's children. 
so that John uses this term here and he is writing to all the people who are the offspring or the born again ones of God. So it would seem that John was thinking of those who have truly grieved over their sins and have repented of their sins and have placed their faith in the finished work of Christ alone for their salvation. Having their lives being transformed by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and these are the ones who are striving daily each day to walk in humble, grateful obedience to the Lord. This seems to be the description of those whom he's writing to. Notice how he completes that sentence. He says, <clears throat> because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Notice, church, that it doesn't matter whether or not you're a brand new Christian or you're an old Christian. If you are born again, your sins are forgiven. Consider Paul writing to the church of Colossae in Colossians 1, uh, verses 13 and 14. Paul writing to this church says, For he, that's God the Father, rescued, literally drawn us to himself out of the domain of darkness, and he's literally transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. He says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I like that word rescued. It's interesting that word rescued is in what we call in the Greek the middle voice. And this is something that God chose to do without any influence of anybody outside. It was his own decision to draw us to himself and rescue us. So church, God through the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit, he is the one that draws us out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom. Paul, notice he reinforces that. He says, transferred from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Interesting word, the word transferred. It means to remove or to change. <coughs> John MacArthur uh, helps spotlight a little bit of the history of this word. You see, back when uh, John was using this word, or I should say when Paul was using this word, the word had this idea in their understanding of this displacement of a conquered people into another land. So what does it mean here? He says it speaks of our total removal from the domain of darkness into his glorious kingdom. How do we apply that? How do we apply that today? Listen, we have been removed from the kingdom of darkness and placed into the glorious kingdom of his light. That's Christ's kingdom. And Paul finishes unpacking this when he says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to make sure we cover that word redemption <clears throat> because I want to make sure we're not thinking of the way it's used today. I don't want to use our 21st century thinking. I want us to say, okay, so what did you mean when you said that, Paul? Uh, the word basically means to deliver by payment of a ransom. Uh, Webster's actually uh, gives us a good definition of the word ransom. Uh, Webster says this, the release of a captive by paying money or complying with the demands. So it has this idea in scripture of freeing a slave from being in bondage. Church, our application today. 
it is Christ alone that frees us from the bondage of sin. We need to start walking like that. It is his shed blood that paid for our sin debt in full. It is Christ alone that um, ransoms us, frees us from the bondage of sin. <clears throat> so Christ, by his finished work on the cross, fully satisfied God the Father's demands. Think about it. The Father provided us with the very sacrifice he demanded from us by giving us his son, Jesus. That was the ransom that was paid to release you and I from the bondage of sin and something else to secure our salvation. I, I like the word forgiveness too. We just use that word nonchalantly sometimes. But that's an interesting word. It's actually two Greek words put together. The word forgiveness. Apo heime. Apo meaning from. The word heime to send from. How do we put that together? This word forgiveness. Well, because Jesus Christ redeemed us by himself being the payment by his shed blood on the cross, our sins have been sent away never to be found against us again. The debt's been paid. But John doesn't stop there. Looking at verse um, 13 to 14, John says this. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. You know this one that's always existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I have written, Aristens, I have written to you children because you know the Father. I have written to you fathers because you know him who has existed from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You know these three classifications that are listed here? John's breaking these down and he's unpacking these three classifications of the spiritual growth of a Christian. He goes from fathers, then to young women, then to the kids. He says, I'm writing to you fathers. You've known him from the beginning. So this group of Christians he identifies as fathers speaks of people that have been believers for quite a long time. They know him who's been from the beginning. And that word know is just not just a passing glance. That word know is experiential knowledge. It's knowledge that's gained through the experience of an ongoing, continuous relationship with Christ. And it's in the present active, meaning something happened to these men a long time ago, and it has ongoing, continuous results in their present life. See, they have a clear understanding based on these years of experience in daily walking and trusting with the Lord. How about us? How about you listening around the world? Their, their church, there's this deep knowledge of God. There's this intimate, ongoing relationship with God. They've come full circle in their Christian walk. And they have a duty to the younger Christians and the kids to warn them of the dangers of being led astray by the false teachers. But then he moves to the second classification. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. So, 
What about these people? So here we have a group of believers that are those who know sound doctrine, but they have not yet come to a full maturity. They have a solid base understanding of the scriptures. They've outgrown most of their childish behaviors that have plagued the new believers. Their theology is intact. They have a strong desire to defend it, to be the apologias. But of this, they have overcome. That's where we get that word Nike from. If you guys have a Nike sneaker, you can say, oh, I overcame. That's what that word's. It's also interesting that this is also in the present active. With these young men, something happened in the past, and now it has this ongoing results in the present. They are strong. They have overcome the wiles of the devil only because the word of God abides in them. If you are not in the word and you're not allowing, and you're not soaking in the word, you're going to have all kinds of stuff bidding for your attention to pull you away from the Lord. Beware of that. Finally, he finishes with this third classification. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I want you to notice here that he adds to what he just said earlier in verse 12. He shares with them that their sins have been forgiven. And now he's reinforcing that truth that they know the Father. It's interesting that John's using that same Greek word for the word know, that, that experiential knowledge that he's using throughout the verses here. This, just as the fathers know that there's one who's from the beginning, they also know the one who's from the beginning. They have joy in their new relationship with Christ. And if you're a new believer, do you have joy? I mean, people can have joy when they watch football games, they get excited because things are opening up again all over the place. And how that can just steal your attention away. Oh, I can go to the mall, I can do this, I can do that. But do they have that real intimate joy because there's a personal relationship with Jesus the Christ? Ask yourself that question. Where do you fall on that? What's bringing you more joy? But he knows that since they're little children, they need to consistently be feeding on the nectar of the Word of God for that spiritual nourishment so they can grow. Church, it would seem then from this teaching that John's desire is to be one of encouraging the believers he's writing to. But now John does something else. He's, he's given them the encouragement. <clears throat> he's reinforcing the foundational doctrines of Christ and crucified. You're born again. Your sins are washed away. You're forgiven. Feed on the word of God. Fathers, you have a responsibility. But then here comes the warning in verse 15 and 16. And even though this was written 2,000 years ago, it is just as, just as relevant as if he penned it today. John says to the believers, do not love the world. Do not love the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I hope that we all take a pause. I want to read that again. I want that to soak in. I want that to convict us if we need convicting, and we all need convicting. John, penning this. Do not love the world. Do not love the things of the world. If, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, he breaks down some classification here to unpack that 
agape toy, that, that love that he's talking about here. For all that is in the world, <clears throat> the lust of the flesh, this craving for sensual gratification, the lust of the eyes, this greedy, ongoing longing of the mind, the boastful pride of life, meaning having assurance in one's own resources or stability of earthly things. John's saying, listen, that's not from the Father. That, that, that stuff's coming from the world. So what do we see here? We see here that John is admonishing us not to love the world. That, by the way, he's not using the word for love, the word phileo, like this like brotherly love. He's not using the word astorge, which is another Greek word for love, which is the kind of love you'd have for a brother or sister. He's not using the word eros even here. He's using the word agape toy if you check your Greek. Agape toy is an act of the will. It's an act of will. I am choosing to be committed regardless. So he's really saying, do not give a whole, all of yourself to be committed to the world, the world system. What is the world system? When he uses the word world there, he's really referring to this system, this earthly system of active rebellion, the system of pride that wants to displace or remove the Lord and his rulership from your life. The world system is a system whose values and goals do not include God in any way, shape, or form. It is a system where it is energized and ruled by Satan. Now, it doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out that the cultural agendas of today are ever increasingly hostile towards Christianity. The traditional family is under this horrible, severe attack by the homosexual alternative lifestyle. The promotion of sexual promiscuity. The world teaches us that it is perfectly acceptable to be sexually active before marriage. The world says, hey, live together, try it out like you're trying out a car, and if it doesn't work, throw it away and get something else. We have this increasing acceptance of violence and materialism and hedonism that we see just pouring through the television and radio. Hedonism. What does that mean? That means pleasure without any restraints. Nothing's off the table. There's a, an increasing decline in personal integrity. A decreasing uh, decline in honest business ethics. Hear me this morning. These things, this system of active rebellion did not originate with God. Did not originate with God. It originated from Satan and the corrupt heart of man. It is a very sinfully horrible, destructive system that destroys the nuclear family. And here's what we've got to be careful of, church. There is this very ongoing seductive influence which Christians need to continually resist because the world system wants to draw your heart away from the Lord so that you're worshiping creation and your desires rather than God. The more the love of this world prevails in your life and my life, the more of love, the love of God decays. Think about it. Think about it. What is, 
here's a question. Life has meaning and I have worth if only I have blank in my life. Life has meaning and I only have worth if I have what in my life? If I have power in my life. I, I only have worth if, if I have power and influence over others. How about this one? Life has meaning and I only have worth if I have approval, if I'm loved and respected by everyone else. Then I have meaning in my life. How about comfort? Life has meaning and I have worth only if I have comfort, if I have these certain kinds of pleasures and experiences. How about image maintenance? Life has meaning and I have worth only if I have this, this certain look or this body image. Or I have independence or achievement or prosperity. Think about it. You see, in every situation, in every relationship of our everyday life, there is this one thing war being fought on the turf and battlefield of your heart. You and I are only safe when our only one thing is Jesus Christ. James, writing in James 4, says, You adulteresses, James is saying, You guys who are having this illicit love affair with the world, don't you know that friendship with the world is actually hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, you're the one taking the stand, and you're making yourself an enemy of God. So let's just take a few more minutes, maybe five minutes, and just take up and look at these three ruling classifications that John is speaking of here in 1 John. The lust of the flesh. That word lust is the word epithemia. means yearning after having this just intense craving for something that's forbidden as it's used in the context here. So when he says the lust of the flesh, he's saying, believers, you're not supposed to be using your bodies in a simple way. You're not supposed to be indulging in all things that excite and inflame sensual pleasure. Because the simple heart of man perverts and it distorts all the normal things and normal desires and plunges those men into relentless pursuit of evil. How about Paul in Galatians 5, writing to the foolish Galatians? He says this, he says, listen, Galatians, the deeds, the works, the practices of the flesh are known. They're evident. They're immorality, impurity. That word impurity, by the way, in there is where we get the word pornography from. It's the word pornea. Sensuality, meaning moral filth. Idolatry, worshiping things in creation instead of God. Sorcery, pharmacia, witchcraft enmities, hostility, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputing with one another, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, the prototype of all addictions, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you and I have forewarned you, that if you're going to practice these things, if these things are going to become a way of life for you, they're going to be the ruling principles in your life what did he say? You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Second classification, the lust of the flesh. I'm sorry, the lust of the eyes. Oplamos is where we get the word optometry from. Where it means vision. As it's used here, it has the idea, when he says lust of the eyes, the idea here in the context of the Greek seems to suggest it's envy, jealousy, you see something from a side glance and you think that you deserve it. 
you want that thing to. Church, sight is a gift from God. It's a gift that He allows you and I to see this incredible creation. But with that being said, because of the simpleness of our hearts, our eyes are also windows for temptation to reveal itself. You see, sin, and all of us, perverts the use of our eyes. And it plunges us into dissatisfaction. It plunges us into idolatry and covetousness. How about this? Here's an here's a acid test question for you. Are your eyes delighted with the wealth and rich possessions of the world? Think about this. What do you consistently find yourself fixing your eyes on? What is that thing that you're chasing after because you think it will give you what you want? Luke says this. Beware, be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of possessions. What's Luke saying? Listen, he's saying, listen, wake up. Your life is not what you're on. And then third, the pride of life. I want to share with you what I shared, a poem. Uh, it was written by Beth Moore. Shared it over the 18 years of our church a couple of times. I think it spells it out. She writes this. My name is Pride. I'm a cheater. I cheat you of your God-given destiny because you always demand your own way. I cheat you of contentment because you think you deserve better than this. I cheat you of knowledge because you think you know it all. I cheat you of healing because you're too full of me to forgive. I cheat you of holiness because you refuse to admit when you're wrong. I cheat you of vision because nobody's going to know the real you. I cheat you of love because real romance demands sacrifice. Let me say that one again. Pride cheats you of love because real romance demands sacrifice. I cheat you of greatness in heaven because you refuse to wash another's feet on earth. I cheat you of glory because I convince you to seek your own. My name's Pride. I'm a cheater. You like me because you think I'm always looking out for you. Untrue. I'm looking to make a fool out of you because God has so much for you. I admit, but don't worry. If stick with me, you'll never know. So writes Beth Moore. It's interesting how pride and selfishness go together like bookends. See, pride is destructive. Pride is one of the number one destroyers of relationships with people as well as the Lord. What does the word pride mean? You ever thought about that? Some kid comes up to you and says, hey, I need a working definition for the word pride for school. What would you tell them? Have you ever taken the time to really think about it? The Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Well, the word pride means arrogance. It means the deification of self. It says, I'm God. Pride is all about bringing glory to self. Pride means, God, I don't need you. I'm already great without you. Pride is something that robs a person of growth. 
it chokes out fruitfulness of our lives and it lies and continually lies about what really matters. Pride says, I have everything I need for my life outside of Christ and you're not welcome here, Lord. Good diagnostic question for us as I finish up is this. How much does the world have a hold on you? What in your life right now, here's a really important question. I want you to be thinking about this. What in your life right now are you unwilling to give up even though you know it's sinful and wrong? What in your life right now are you unwilling to give up even though you know it's sinful and it's wrong? How, how often do you and I see ourselves rejecting God's word because we want our own way? You know, nobody talks to you more than you, and you can just about talk yourself into anything if you really want it. Please hear me this morning. We all, starting with me, all of us, need to consistently and ongoingly guard our hearts. How do we do do this? How do we guard our hearts? Well, as we've been reading, it first begins by completely surrendering all of your heart and life over to the person whose name is Jesus Christ. That's the only way you will ever have victory. Completely surrendering your entire life. Not little compartments of your life like, like your heart becomes this rooming house and you have all your sins in these little rooms in there, and God's opening up and He's dealing with this, and you're saying, wait a minute, God, that room there is off limits to you. You can't have that room. Lord, you can have all these rooms over here, but you can't have that room in my heart right there, Lord. Surrendering all of your life to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, it's very interesting what Matthew, what Jesus said in Matthew 6.21. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. What's the definition of a treasure? Ever thought about that? Kid comes up to you and says, Hey, this eighth grade project, I need to define the word treasure. What does the word treasure mean? The Bible uses it where your treasure is. That's where your heart's at. What is a treasure? Think about it. A treasure is something that gives your life value. What is, it, what is he teaching us here? What you and I value the most is what controls our emotions and our desires. Think about it. You build your life around going after that thing that you think will give you what you want. Your whole life circles around it. What we treasure the most, what we value the most is what gives us the motivation and purpose. So then whatever controls my heart, whatever controls your heart, controls our behavior. You and I do what we do because we think it will give us what we want. Have we ever taken the time to notice that there's something in our lives that gives us a sense of purpose, a sense of motivation, well-being? What is that for you? Whether you realize it or not, you're organizing your whole life around it. And it keeps you going even when things aren't right. 
I like what Jeremy Lalick says in the Association of Biblical Counselors. He says this, Our hearts seem to work overtime in developing systems in which whatever we need, we are empowered to access. I'm hungry. DoorDash, Grubhub. Our culture is this exceptional specimen of creativity when it comes to identifying felt needs, the producing of a product, system, or theory to help fulfill those needs. But what does the Bible say we need? After all, the one who knit us in our mommy's wounds knows far better than what we need than we will ever begin to know. Because sin has blinded us from that. Peter writes, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? How does it do it? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Granted. Uses the word granted. Bestowing something on us. The power that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us, bestowed on us when he saved us, is the same power that has continuous, ongoing results in our life. If you are truly born again, God the Holy Spirit indwells you, and that power carries you. Everything pertaining to life. So, let me close. How do we apply this? This is how I, my mind works. <laughs> So I had to ask the question, how often do I find myself thinking that because of sin in my life, something must be missing? How about you? How often do you find yourself thinking that because of sin in your life, something surely must be missing? And when we continue to dwell on that faulty way of thinking, you ever notice that our hearts start to wander away from the Lord, just wander away? Satan loves to have us wander just a little bit. The rope's taken off right there at the shore, and the boat just slowly starts going out farther and farther away from the shore. And so what do we end up doing? Well, we start looking for these blessings somewhere else. We, we start window shopping for things that will make us feel better about ourselves. Shelves are littered with self-help books, aren't they? Some will even start twisting the scriptures around their sin to justify their thinking so they can continue chasing foolish pursuits. You know, we can easily find ourselves saying things like this. You know, God isn't interested in my problems. You ever put God on trial like that? You know, God, if you really love me, this wouldn't be, ha if you really love me, God, this wouldn't be happening. And yet the scriptures are clear based on what is written in 2 Peter 1.3. He's given us everything pertaining to life. So let me close. If you're a true follower of Christ, meaning you've completely placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, then you already have everything you need to persevere in your Christian walk. You don't need second-rate wisdom systems to fill in the so-called gaps in your life. You just need to feed on His Word. Let me close. Father, thank you for your Word this morning. Thank you for calling us out of darkness. Lord, if there's anybody this morning who's listening to this 
that they have not surrendered their life to you, I pray that they would confess their sin to you and surrender their life to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, we'll see you next week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause the face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, give you peace. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week.